So I want to, this morning, uh, have us reflect um, on just kind of some big picture things uh, as we approach prayer and and scripture. So uh, I want to start with uh, a very famous quote by St. Augustine. You probably heard before uh, his prayer uh, or his statement, O Lord, you have made us for you and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Oh, Lord, you have made us for you, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And that's a, it's a, a glorious line from St. Augustine. And what's cool is that um, it actually has a slight twist on that for you. We tend to think, okay, we're made for God. Like, we got to serve him and stuff like that. But the, the Latin word is actually ad te, uh, toward you, not for you. Feel how that sounds different in your head if I say, Oh, Lord, you have made us toward you. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And it tells us something about who we are, right? Um, yes, we do know, love, and serve God. That's our goal, to be, you know, to do those sort of things. But we're not just made just like as like little robots to serve God. Um, we're made toward him, meaning that there's something in me that's naturally oriented to him. And when I turn away from that, I'm going to be unhappy. There's sin, right? And when I turn toward him, it's going to fill me up and it's going to make a difference uh, for me. And that, that makes the whole scriptural story sound different, right? You know, if, if, if from day one, when you're thinking of like the Garden of Eden, if we're not thinking like God made these little, you know, people to, to do his work and, and to never make mistakes and, and to, you know, flawlessly serve him, you know, as they are creatures and he is creator, you get a different feel if you say these people were made from God, out of love, from love, by love, right? And in them is a peace that longs to, to be filled with that divine love. And when they are connected to that, there they find happiness because that's how they were made. They were more made toward God, right? And yet, because they have free will, if they want, they can turn away, right? They can do that, but they're not going to be as happy, right? They're not going to find those things that fill them. They're not going to have those deepest longings answered, and that's, that makes a whole, you know, different kind of way of, of looking at, you know, what we're trying to do in prayer, uh, what we're trying to do when we read scripture, right? When we do any Christian exercise, like when we fast on Ash Wednesday, when we skip meat on Fridays, when we, you know, pray our rosary, when we, um, you know, do any sort of penance, when we help our neighbors, when we do the works of mercy, right? What we're doing is we're, we're, we're not just, you know, checking off boxes, right? But we're doing things that fill us up. Because it's what we were made for, right? We were made in that image and likeness, and therefore, the more we connect with what we're the image of, the more it's naturally going to make it good for us, right? It's kind of like uh, we're like needing regular maintenance, and so you come to the, the person who, who, who makes you, but it's more than just fixing, it's actually filling us up with saying, like, uh, let me put all this back. So it's as if your car mechanic can just change your oil, but literally, you know, changed everything. Like, like readjust everything. Ah, the car is perfect again, right? You know, constantly filling you up. Um, with that in mind, uh, as we look at kind of a, a big, big overview picture of, of how we look at Scripture and how it can help us pray and stuff like that, um, you know, if we are made for God, but more importantly, toward Him, and yes, you know, uh, we are restless until we until we rest in him, and along the way, until we know, love, and serve him. If we're, if we're doing that, then what we need is to be able to come close to him, and that is the thing that will satisfy, right? And so prayer, reading scriptures, sacraments, those sort of things, you know, bring us close to him. But 
Jesus is how we know God best, right? Um, it, he's even how we see God, right? He tells us that, right? You know, you know, the, Philip says at the Last Supper, you know, Lord, you know, just show us the Father and that'll be enough for us, right? And, and Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long and still you don't get it? You know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Um, this is interesting. I shared with my parish uh, a couple weeks ago that um, in the... I, I had a big heart surgery just over three years ago. I had, they had aortic aneurysm and a new valve and all that sort of stuff. So I was out for a good while. And when you're laying there on the bed as they're, like, starting to stick things in you, um, you know, you're, you're fairly... Uh, um, in, not incapacitated. You, you can't do stuff. You're immobilized and you just have to sit there and stuff like that. And then when you wake up from said surgery, you're still laying there, but now it's because you feel like somebody ran an axe through your chest, right? Um, and the, the prayer that came on my lips just as I was like getting ready to go in there and that stuck with me the whole rest of the time as I was laying there was, you know, Jesus, just show me the Father. Jesus, show me your father. That was the, the nonstop little mantra. It was, like, it was about the only thing I could do sometimes. I was in enough pain that that's all I could think of. Um, and, uh, and, and it's a thing that, that just kind of became the line, even drifting in and out of consciousness. And it's funny, because it's quoting Philip, who Jesus actually like, yells at, right? <laughs> like, Jesus is like, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But Jesus tells in other places, his whole mission is to show us the Father, bring us back to the Father, connect us to the Father, right? So uh, Jesus is the way that we know God. And in Scripture, there's a lot of other stories in there than just the story of Jesus, uh, and they're important on their own right. But everything basically brings us back to Jesus. Everything brings us back to Jesus as the revelation of God, the revelation of the Father. And it's a, you know, that's, that's the difference. You know, people try and present Christianity as like, well, it's like other, other religions, right? You've got like, you know, Buddha and Muhammad and Jesus. They're all wise prophets. They share things like, hold on. Muhammad makes it very clear he's just the prophet, right? He's, he would not say, I am, I am the way in which you will see and know God, right? He doesn't say, you know, um, if, if I cast out demons, you know, you, the finger of God is, a, is amongst you, right? And he doesn't, you know, say the sort of things that we're like, whoa, he's definitely telling us, you know, how he is showing us God. They would, Muhammad would never do that, right? I mean, we're like, oh, so it's just like, all the Greek and Egyptian myths, right? You know, with God down among earth. You're like, yeah, but no one knows in anything that's going on there, right? Just one day Zeus came down and walked around. One day, you know, Ares was, you know, down killing people or something like that, right? You know, we say, no, Pontius Pilate matters because he tells us exactly what years Jesus dies in. He connects us to history. There is no just random once upon a time that there is in Greek and, and Egyptian myths and stuff like that, right? So, it's, it's a different kind of thing where we're saying our God has shown us his own face in the person of Jesus. He has come and, and, and been with us, and his goal is to bring us back. It's not just a story or just a set of lessons. It's something utterly different. It's God saying, you're never going to know me enough, and you are made toward me. So the only way I can give you enough is to come and be with you. And then he and us together are toward the Father. And what's, the reason I bring this up is because it helps understand why it's okay to learn, why it's okay to study, to meditate, to contemplate, why it's okay to dig into Scripture and other places, why it's okay to use our mind and our emotions. Because when we're, when we're learning and we're digging, you know, we're not losing anything. I'm sure that no one's going to be trapped, you know, no one's suddenly going to be like, I'm a doctoral student and now I, you know, all I do is think about Jesus. I never actually pray about Jesus. That's not going to happen, right? Um, but 
the reason why we want to learn and dig is because in any relationship, there can be misunderstandings and false assumptions, right? We know that. That's, that's part of life, right? And, 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 you know, you find that out with your, your spouse, your parents, your siblings. You know, years later, you find out, like, that your sibling has this same view. And so you're like, huh, we should have talked about that sometime in the last 40 years, right? You know, but it's one of those things where, you know, we, we, cannot, we can miss out on that. So there's always more to know. There's always more layers to dig down so that we can see God through Jesus so that we can have that. And by doing that, you know, it, it gives us an image um, that we can also then plug ourselves into. We can see ourselves in those stories. Um, but most importantly, we see God's story. Uh, someone, someone once talked about um, the, the Bible being, yes, it's the story of God's people, but it's also kind of God's biography, right? Uh, and and, and it's, it's God telling us what he's doing. So with that in mind, I want to uh, take a, a, a look at kind of the big, big, big picture here, uh, right? What do we normally do? You know, normally we start off by having people, you know, you know re- either read certain books, like Jeff Cavins has his 14 recommended books or whatever. Other people will tell you to um, do something uh, that, you know, just dive in on some book and read some part of the scriptures, right? Other people would recommend using a one-year Bible. Uh, I showed you last night my original picture Bible uh, and the action Bible. So my parish as of the last two weeks, has sold 255 copies of the Action Bible. Because what I realized was I grew up with an advantage like nobody else had. Very few Catholic kids had that kind of advantage. And I realized that made all the difference in my life because I knew the story. The story was different, and I, and I knew the story. Um, the story hit me different is what I should say. Um, and so my desire was to, to get that out and, 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 and you know, I said, you can buy this for your little kids, but I'm hoping that you grandparents will actually end up reading it yourselves. And I said, I'm going to subsidize this. We had the parish change some money from evangelization in one program to another. So I'm like, I'm going to give it to you for five bucks. You get an action Bible for five bucks, your first one. Anything after that is 15, because I still got to pay Amazon something, right? But, but five bucks a pop. And because I just want to get those in people's hands, because I want people to, to see the story, right? To see the big story. But along with that, when we when we do that, sometimes it's just we see it as like okay, there it is. It's a it's creation. It's the fall. It's uh, at Cain and Abel. It's Noah. It's Abraham. It's Moses. It's David. We've learned the basic gist of things, and that's fine. But don't hesitate to also let yourself meditate on like the big, big, big picture of like God is a creator God. God is a covenant God. God is doing all this out of his love and, and, and desire to, to make us happy and to have us with him and him with us. And so if you think about it that way, then when you go back to read creation, don't just think about like, okay, I'm going to read it in order and I'm going to get different things out of it. But even sit, do this exercise really quick. Think of a time, like a time of day or a time of year that just makes you happy. Think of it for a second. Maybe it's a season. Maybe it's a day. What's that one movie? Is it Miss Congeniality? What's your perfect date? And she says, like, April 25th. It's just light enough for a jacket. You know, um, you know but, but, but like, whether it's a time of day, a time of the year, a time of something, picture that place which just totally good and makes you happy. Okay? So you got a when, right? Think of a where. Think of some place that just makes you truly happy. Like, maybe it's outdoors, or maybe it's grandma's house. Maybe it's um, uh, a certain place that you just have 
a little bit of a memory from a kid, but you always think of that, that when you want to think about a place of, of peace or maybe it's a place you go to all the time, you know, on vacation. Okay? So there you've got a, a, a where and a when now. And now think about a thing, anything, anything uh, that, that just gives you happiness and gives you joy, whether it be a dog, whether it be a child, whether it be um, uh, a certain kind of flower that you just love the smell of, whether it be, um, you know, a, a relationship with another person. Okay, think of that. So now you got a what, Right? Creation isn't always just, here are the six days of creation in Genesis 1. You know, like, even the more personal story of Genesis 2, where God is in the garden and making mud pies and blowing in the nostrils and stuff like that. It's even more personal than that. When we say that God is a creator God, he didn't just create at the beginning of time, right? Everything is his ongoing creation. This is getting kind of metaphysical here, but basically, like, God create, has one creative act, but it's always ongoing, your breathing right now is part of his creative act. The life in you, the blood flowing in you, the b- thoughts in your brain, the existence of your soul, that's actually all part of God's one single perpetual creative act, right? Because you would have trouble if God was like making and then not making or he was you know, just doing stuff at one time. Everything flows out of him. So when we say creator, the reason I had you do those things is realize he created that for you. That place, that time, that thing, those who, what, who, where's, and when's, those are gifts from the creator. Those are things that he has done. So, and he made them for you so that you could take joy in them, that they would fill you up, right? God is good, so what he makes is good. God is beautiful, so what he makes is beautiful. Now, right now, you might be thinking, well, but the world has problems too. Yeah, we know that, but we also know that, like, sin came in and messed a lot of things up. But when you experience those, those things, when you say God is creator, don't just think of Genesis 1 and 2. Don't just think of the creation story. Think of the things right now going on. You're like, he's the creator of that sunlight coming through those windows, right? He's the creator of the wood that made those pews, right? He gave power to the artist to make that statue or to make that gold tabernacle or to paint those angels in that reverent way, right? He, he made Mary, Right? That's one of his things. He's one of his amazing things. He made you. He made your spouses and your children and your friends, right? When you think of him as creator, all of that is his creation. All of that, not just the beginning of the story, right? But we do know that the story has, you know, some, some fascinating, you know, twists and turns, right? God creates and he made us toward him, Adam and Eve toward him, and then they broke that, right? They, they, they turned away. They said, uh, I went this over here, but now I'm not getting filled up, right? And I kind of cheated by letting N.T. Wright, one of our uh, uh, authors, letting him give you the breakfast talk this morning, because he's really good at, at talking about how we Christians can skip the Old Testament so easy. That's why this was so good for me as a kid, because when you're eight, Jesus is cool and all, but he's not as cool as like guys with spears, swords, storming castles, dudes on horses, right? I mean, that's so much more fun when you're, when you're three or I mean, third grade, right? So you soak in that whole story. And sometimes we, because the Old Testament is big and confusing and it seems like it's not really important, as N.T. Wright, the author, said there, sometimes we just go, Adam and Eve sin, lots of time pass, Jesus saves us. Right? And that's oftentimes how we do it. And he warns that, you know, the, the reason to read the Old Testament isn't just to know the stuff that then Jesus and Paul recognize. It's that God from the beginning was ready to work to restore his creation. Right? 
God is good. He made us towards him. So if he makes a planet and all of a sudden things are going wrong on it, he's not just going to be like, well, see you in a couple thousand years when you're ready for Jesus. No, he says, we're going to work on this. We're going to fix this. I'm going to make a promise. I'm going to choose a man through who I'm going to work my promise. But it's not Jesus. It's Abraham, right? God chooses Abraham as his person he's going to work through. He says, I'm calling Abraham. And most of us just know Abraham with the story with Isaac and the, you know, the slaughter and, you know, going to offer or sacrifice your son. Because that's, because we know, we know stories. We know stories from like first grade, right? We don't know the idea that God said, how am I going to fix the problem between man and God? Genesis 3, the fall, and then man and all his other fellow humans. Genesis 11, with the Tower of Babel. He says, I'm going to pick one family out of this broken family, and I'm going to say, you're my chosen vessel. I'm going to use you. You're going to be my light to the nations. You're going to be a, a source of a worldwide blessing. All nations will be blessed in you. I'm going to work through you. But as he said, the problem is that, like, as you read through the rest of the, the New, Old Testament, it, it, it's... God's not a very good author. He didn't wrap up his story very well at all, right? Like, each section ends really messed up. Deuteronomy ends with, like, him saying, here's blessings, here's curses, here's life, here's death, choose wisely. Eh, you chose it, but, you know, I know you, you're going to fall into curses, you're going to choose death, and eventually you're going to get exiled, whatever, you're stupid, right? So that's not a very uplifting way to end the Pentateuch, right, the Torah, right? And then if you go through the other books, they end, like, Chronicles ends the historical books by saying, and then we got sent to exile. That's about it, right? Like, it, it, what a horrible way to tell a story. Like, there's no, there's no conclusion, right? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a story in, in search of an ending. You know, the, the, the prophets, you go through them. Malachi is the last of the prophets. And he says, someday, someday God will come and act again. Someday God will come and do this. But right now, we're basically just waiting. And in fact, there's like 500 years where there's like very, very little stuff that we would consider God acting in the, in the lives of the people. Um, but what that's all doing is that it's saying that like, as he, as he put it this morning, that the, the Adam's, Abraham's family is the source of rescue and it gets stuck. It has this image of a, a, you know, a boat is out in the harbor, gets stuck on the sandbar. So you send out a smaller boat to go rescue the people. But what if it gets stuck on the sandbar? He says, that's Israel. Israel is meant to be the solution, but they themselves are fallen human beings, so they get stuck, right? Somebody has to undo this. How, are we gonna do this. How can Israel be the light to the nations when they're fallen? How can Israel bring the blessing when they can't even choose blessings, right? This is Paul, Romans 1, 2, and 3, right? That, that Israel was called to do this but couldn't do this. How do we do, how do we fix this problem? So I just give that as a quick big picture because then we realize if we see that, we're like, okay, God was always saying, you were made toward me and I want you back towards me. And he's calling them towards him, but it's, it's not happening because the rescue operation is stuck, right? The people who are supposed to be, you know, on the journey, as he said, are like lost in the woods, right? So someone has to change that. And so that's why we, when you have that, now you understand, like, this is what Jesus is answering, right? It's not just like, Adam and Eve sinned, we wait for Jesus, we're saved. It's this whole idea that God has been working in his creation and in this covenant. That's a big word to describe everything that's going on with, with Abraham's family. He's working in creation and covenant, but he now needs someone who can renew creation and reinstitute or re-ratify or, or institute a new covenant, right? And that's why he sends Jesus, right? 
All I'm trying to do is just give you a big, big picture of the Bible there so that you can kind of feel like this is a story written for me to get to know God. This is a story written for me to turn and face towards God. This is trying to bring me in that direction. When you go through the Bible, though, of course, you're looking at individual lines out of a really, really, really big book. And it's hard then to, to you know, immediately turn that line or that story or all those begat, begat, begats um, into, into an understanding of what God is doing. So a couple of hints, a couple of little tools. First of all, context. We never read a verse alone. A verse is always in the midst of a chapter. This is the problem when people have, like, proof texts, right, and they try and quote a verse. And then you're like, ha, it says this. And you're like, okay, but what about the whole chapter? You can't divorce it from its chapter, right? And a chapter is read in light of a whole book. And a book's read in light of the whole of, of the entire Bible. And even that's read in light of the whole Christian faith. Because you can find one-liners in the Bible that seem to go against the Christian faith, right? I mean, Jesus says, you know, on the one hand, the Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But then he also turns around and says, you know, um, that the Father is greater than I. And even I don't know the day or hour at which the end of the world will come. And so you're like, how does that work? Well, we read in light of the whole faith, which has a way of balancing that, that. That Jesus is God come to earth. And yet also, in his human nature, there are things he either can't do or can't see within God's plan. That, that, he cho- that God chooses to not put all that in, in Jesus' human nature, right? That helps us to kind of be like, okay, there's always a bigger picture. There's always a bigger picture. There's always a bigger picture. That doesn't mean we can't take individual lines that maybe don't fit perfectly in context and they don't speak to us in the moment, but always try and see it in that bigger picture. Also, we got to know, like, how is God writing to us? I've mentioned Genesis a lot in this talk, right? When you read Genesis, like, you can take it as six days, literally 24 hours long creation. That's certainly allowed. But if you're sitting there going like, but my... Understanding of, like, I don't know, like, fossils and dinosaurs and time and geology and even astronomy and astrophysics tells me the world is really old, the galaxy is really, really big, and it's been going on for a long, long time, like billions of years. You can put those two together, right? As one of my classmates likes to say, everything in Genesis is true. You just have to know how to read it, right? This is what I talk about understanding different forms. Because who's Genesis written for? It's written for a bunch of nomadic, semi-barbarian goat herders, right? Imagine trying to talk about billions of years with people who probably can't picture more than 100, right? Can you picture 100 of goats? I think you could probably picture 100 goats. Can you picture 1,000 goats accurately? I don't think I could. I wouldn't know 500 goats from 5,000 goats, right? Like, I can't do that big of a number. I can't do things either really, really big like the universe or really, really small like atoms. So what does God do? He tells it in a way that they can understand, Right? So he says in the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there's light. Right? And then he says, in time, um, then God forms stars, and then in time, God makes planets, and then the planet gets water, and then it gets clouds, and then it gets plants, and then it gets animals. Well, that's not actually that far off from the scientific story, if you realize that the time doesn't have to be literal. Right? So in the beginning, what happened? There's a big bang. Right? And Massive amounts of heat and energy, right? And then those things start to cool down, and they coalesce into balls of gas, which become stars, including our sun, right? And then in time, heavier metals coalesce, and they become planets like ours. Still crazy hot, right? In time, it cools down, and then water can both form in in terms of clouds and condensation, and then also can be rivers and lakes on the planet. And then if you've got water, you can have plants. And if you've got plants, you can eventually have 
as Genesis likes to say, fish and reptiles and creepy crawly things and cattle, right? All those sort of things you can have. I'm not saying that the Bible is describing evolution in Genesis, but it might be. If you need to describe it, it's a way to do it. And if God is always making one single creative act, then that all fits in God's creation, too. It's totally, it's totally doable. Um, Jonah. Jonah's a little confusing. Being three days in the belly of a whale, you're like, ah, I, I don't, can you do that? Can you even get in the belly of a whale? I don't know how that works, right? Um, and then he spit out, and he's got this huge city, Nineveh, that it takes three days to walk through. And like, even like L.A., I think you could, cr- could cross in less than three days, right? Like, what's, the, what's going on here? But then we read Jonah, and look at all the other prophets. Jonah's nothing like the other prophets. All the other ones is, the word of God said to me, and then you, you, basically you yell at the people for being idiots for a while, and then give them some hope and promise, right? Jonah's not like that. It's a cartoon story, practically, right? That's why VeggieTales made it into a cartoon, because it's a story that reads like a little parable. If you read it next to Jesus' parables, you're like, oh, this is really actually a lot like the, the, the uh, prodigal son or some other parable. If we think of it as being not like another prophet, but being like a parable, you're like, oh, yeah, it's a parable about not judging even your pagan neighbors and assuming that they're going to go to hell and being patient with them just as God is being patient with you, which is a really great setup for the story of Jesus and then the apostles and the Acts of the Apostles, right? It's there to help us in that way. Revelation, you probably have heard plenty of things on this, that Revelation it's not necessarily giving us a timeline of a bunch of things that are going to happen consecutively. The most classic way of reading Revelation is actually the idea that it's the constant ongoing story of the church and the Paschal mystery, right? It's so like we tell the story of the Paschal mystery one way in the Gospels, right? Jesus is teaching, Jesus is loving, Jesus is healing, Jesus is captured, Jesus is patient, Jesus suffers, Jesus dies, Jesus rises. We tell it differently in Paul, right? Paul tells it in, in much smaller chunks, focusing on a theology. And Revelation kind of tells the story in a different way, where this, this heavenly courtroom and worship of the saints of God and the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain, and out of this throne room comes graces so that the martyrs can shed their blood and the people can be faithful and God's creation can be renewed. That's going on all the time. The story of Revelation is not necessarily this blueprint for future destruction of the planet. It's describing what's going on right now. That's why guys like Scott Hahn talk about it as being like an early liturgy book. It's telling us how we worship God. All right. Sorry. I'm taking a long time on that stuff. Um, But like the books I laid out in the other room, those are tools that are good to help us get into the story, to help us grasp it. my number one suggestion, if you want to read a book that's going to help you read Scripture better, is Frank Sheed's To Know Christ Jesus. It's the one book I don't have in the other room because it's, um, somebody borrowed mine, I just never got it back. I have it on iBook, so I'm like, I'm fine, but I can't show it to you if it's on my phone in, as an iBook. Um, Benedict XVI, his books, they're really, really good, and they're coming from the Catholic Pope. Right, so you know everything here is totally kosher, no pun intended, um, and everything is you know everything in there is really good. But Benedict also will quote modern scripture scholars, which is two things. One, it's a little confusing because we don't know all these German scholars that he's quoting sometimes. But on the other hand, it like is helpful because like, oh, that means you're allowed to read modern scripture scholars. They don't have everything right. Sometimes they're kind of a little skeptical of stuff in the Bible. There can be good things in their work, even if it's not perfect. Uh, kind of a blind squirrel finds the nut kind of thing, right? There's some good things there. 
Um, and then uh, and this, the audio book we heard today was by N.T. Wright. And Wright has written a bunch of big academic books and then a lot of now kind of popular books. He wrote, like, Simply uh, Christian, the one I showed you there. Also, Simply Jesus, the one you listened to this morning, uh, was called How God Became King. He takes little slices of Bible theology and makes books out of it. Um, as Don and I were talking, the, what's that? Mm-hmm. Can you put that on a piece of paper and put it with the other books out in the, in the dining room? Great. I was actually just about to mention, Don, because he and I were talking earlier that N.T. Wright, he's probably never had a thought he hasn't published a book about. And that's true. He's got tons of them. But any of them are a place to pick up new, new stuff and get new ideas. Because when we get those things, we're not historians, but if a historian can put them in normal words for us, we can get more out of the Jesus story. If somebody can explain to us what a certain thing means or what it meant in that time, we can get new things out of it, Old Testament and New Testament. It, it, it's, it's very helpful stuff. Finally, I want to end with uh, just the idea of, uh, like, close reading. Now, right now, nothing I'm doing here is especially spiritual. That'll be in other talks. If you're wondering, like, wow, this feels like a lot of academic or history stuff, it's because I want to lay, say, a base layer, and then we can reflect more in other times. Theologians and authors, but also preachers and teachers, one of the things that they really do is, in addition to their prayer over scripture, they do what's called a close reading. And this means reading the book, reading the passage very closely. In doing so, you're also looking for parallels with other stuff. Does this pop up in another place? This word, this character, this idea. And then from that, letting yourself do conclusions. What I did last night with the three prayers of our Mass, that was a close reading of the Mass text as opposed to a close reading of the scriptural text. But when you do that, that's where things really pop and give you new ideas. For example, if you read through the first couple of chapters of 1 Corinthians, really chapter 1 and 2, this is where Paul has his famous lines about, you know, um, you know the, cru- cru- the crucifixion is a, a stumbling block to Jews and insanity to the, the Greeks, right? It's, it's uh, folly, as it's sometimes translated, right? And it goes on to explain, though, that's fine because the weakness of God is more powerful than the power of the world, and the foolishness of God is more, power, is more wise than the wisdom of the world. And he has all this discussion about who's truly wise and all that sort of stuff, and he, he reflects again and again, and even says, I, I came to you with the intention of only showing you Christ crucified, and if you could take it, great. If not, so be it. And you're like, man, that's cool. I like that. That fires us up. That gets us excited to embrace the cross, to understand that it's not about tons of knowledge and wisdom. You know, it's all about, like, embracing the cross in love. Jesus loved me that much. I can love as well. All those things. But what's really cool is then if you find the part in Acts of the Apostles that describes right before he gets to Corinth, it puts a whole new light on it. So Paul has gone to Athens. Athens, you know, city of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. He's like, ah, philosophers. I've read philosophers. These are philosophers. Let's talk to them. And he gives this big, long speech at the, what they call the Areopagus. And he talks and talks and talks. And, uh, and at the end, they're like, this was interesting. We'd like to hear you maybe another time. Yeah, go ahead and get out of here, Paul. Right? And it was basically just nice. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll call you. Uh, yeah, we should get together. I'll, I'll give you a call. Yeah, take care. Bye. Right? Like, they, they ghost him. Right? They, they say, a few people are interested, but they leave him. And then Paul walks from Athens to Corinth. Um, most of the times he takes a ship, but he walks on this one, and he has no one else with him. We're told that he sent the other friends, like Timothy and Silas, back up north, 
where, where they had been before, um, and he walked alone. So he's walking alone on the road from Athens to Corinth, having just made a total failure of himself, right? He thought he was going to win them over and really show them the truth, and he got like nothing. There's like three people that listened to him and said, we're interested in this Jesus guy. And you can then begin to picture when he says, I resolved when I came to you to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. You're like, that's what you mean. On that road, you were depressed as heck. You were mad. You thought you had it solved. You thought you had all the right answers and the right words. And you turned out you didn't. And you had to rethink your entire approach. And you said, I'm not coming with smooth words. I'm not coming with philosophy. I'm going to show you Jesus and his death on the cross. And if you can handle it, awesome. And if not, I don't even care. I'm coming to bring the full gospel with all even its confusion and pain. And it is going to change your life if you'll let it. Like, that makes sense. You know, he wasn't just describing his, his constant plan of let's show you Christ crucified. He's saying, this I realized was the only way that I can preach because Jesus or the Holy Spirit is not letting my words be effective anywhere else. He's telling me, start with the cross, even though you think that'd be the dumbest place to start. I'm telling you to start there. But that only works if we put the two together and say, oh, they can teach me other things. Like when you read, uh, we're in Lent, we're going to read the Passion uh, Gospels here pretty soon. We hear about how, you know, Simon the Cyrene carries the cross for Jesus. And you might remember that in one of the Gospels, it tells us that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. And you're like, okay, that's just a random thing. But then you look in Romans chapter 16, and you find that Rufus is mentioned. And it's not that common of a name. We don't know if it's the same Rufus, but it's cool to think about one of Simon of Cyrene's sons, who maybe even saw him help Jesus, then went on to be one of the main Christians in Rome later on. And then you can, like, meditate on that family. You can meditate on your family. You can think about, like, what would it have been like to have your dad be the one that carried the cross for Jesus? And how does that change your life? Or what changed in your dad's life that he then passed on to you that you would go... And then you wonder, like, where's Simon now? Did he die as a martyr? Is he somewhere else? That's fruit for thought right there. And you can meditate 20 minutes on that thought alone. Like, what is that family like? You know, you probably know this one. You can read through Genesis chapter 15, um, the, the actual story of Abraham's covenant with God. And you read through there. And uh, we always picture it the same way. We always picture that, um, G, that Adam, Abraham does a little sacrifice with God. Um, and then he, uh, he, uh, God shows him. I'm sorry, I did that in the wrong word. Before Abraham does his sacrifice and chops up these animals, God says, go outside, look up at the sky, count the stars if you can. Right? And we hear that as there's so many stars you can't count them, right? You know, there, it, there's, you know, wow, that's the whole Milky Way, I can't do it, right? And in fact, there's even one time later on the, in the Bible where it kind of implies that's what it's referring to. But if you read Genesis all the way through, God makes that statement go count the stars if you can, if you can. And then later on, he chops up the animals, and then it gets dark, which means if you take it literally, the sun was out when he said, go look up at the sky and count the stars if you can. Now the if you can means something different, doesn't it? And it's funny because Abraham wouldn't have known this, but we know how that works. The stars are always there. It's just the sun is too bright and you can't see them. But he's saying, go outside on a bright sunny day, count the stars if you can. So will your children be. You don't know how you're going to have children. You're 100. Your wife is 80. What hopes would you have? Right? It's like looking at the bright sunny sky and looking for stars. He says, and yet they're there. You will have Isaac, and Isaac will have Jacob, 
and Jacob will have 12 sons, and out of that an entire nation will come. So the, the idea of God's, or Abraham's faith is entirely different when you're like, oh, I think the sun is out. Different thoughts there. There's a whole lot of different things that you can pull. One last thing with Abraham and Isaac. You go through and you read, um, you read the call of Abraham to go and sacrifice Isaac. And you read, it's, um, it's Genesis 22, 1 and 2. When he calls him, if you read it through, and you can even do it with a comparison where it shows you like what the actual word order is. And it says, Abraham, take son, your son, only son, beloved son, Isaac. Right, the order it's actually laid out in is is designed that it, that God is being like super duper punching him on the top of the head. Like you have one son, only one son. He's your beloved, and he's what I'm asking you to sacrifice. Right, and that's really intense when you read it that way. And then you start to think about the gospel, and you're like, Jesus is God's only son, his beloved son. Right, and he's asking for, and he is being sacrificed. So it's, it's really cool when you do that close reading, new things come out to you that you can pray with. This is why it's not a problem to, to study and to learn, to get a bigger picture, to use tools and stuff like that, because then you actually get a much richer prayer life. In other conferences later on today, we'll talk about how do you pray with that, but I want you just to be able to realize you don't need to be afraid of the Bible. There's, there's ways to get into it, and if the 14 books of Jeff Cavins works for you, great. If not, Get yourself an action Bible. Get yourself a thing with comics in it. You might be amazed at how well you, you learn the story from, from doing that and how much that actually helps you then understand and appreciate things in the future. I'm going to stop talking because I've been talking a lot here. Um, but uh, if, you, if you're asking yourself, okay, how do I even start? I want to just give you a few recommendations. Um, try either the Gospel of Mark or John. Those are the two easiest Gospels to, to start with. Try Philippians if you want to try some Paul. That's, that's Paul's, like, probably most beautiful short letter. Um, try the first letter of John. It's later on. It's not the gospel. It's the letter of John. Um, or try, in the Old Testament, there's what's called the Psalms of Ascents, like going up, ascending, because it's what the Jews used to pray as they would go up to Jerusalem for their yearly feast. That's Psalm 120 through 134. And you'll notice they have a, a joy in them, but also some sorrow in them. But, but either way, they're the most, some of the most poetic psalms, so they're really cool to meditate on. And if you want to look at maybe a prophet, um, Isaiah chapter 40 to 55 is really the heart of the good stuff in Isaiah, like the stuff that then applies to like Jesus' uh, mission and stuff like that. Also, if you're just looking for something like, you know, different, try either Ruth or 1 Samuel. Those are a good places to kind of get the story down. But anyway, um, those are just some ideas. Of, if you want to just dive in and start doing some thinking and praying, start there. Otherwise, I'll give you more ideas in the future conferences.